electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. As a brief aside, I will note that these are subjects about which I care deeply. I have dedicated my career to public service because I love this country and our Constitution and the rights that make us free. I also understand from my many years of practice as a legal advocate, as a trial judge, and as a judge on a court of appeals, that part of the genius of the constitutional framework of the United States is its design, and that the framers entrusted the judicial branch with the crucial but limited role. I've also spent the better part of the past decade hearing thousands of cases and writing hundreds of opinions, and in every instance, I have done my level best to stay in my lane and to reach a result that is consistent with my understanding of the law and with the obligation to rule independently without fear or favor. I am humbled and honored to continue in this fashion as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, working with brilliant colleagues, supporting and defending the Constitution, and steadfastly upholding the rule of law. But today, at this podium, my mission is far more modest. I'm simply here to give my heartfelt thanks to the categories of folks who are largely responsible for me being here at this moment. First, of course, there is my family. Mom and Dad, thank you, not only for traveling back here on what seems like a moment's notice, but for everything you've done and continue to do for me. My brother Kataj is here as well. You've always been an inspiration to me as a model of public service and bravery, and I thank you for that. I love you all very much. <laughs> to my in-laws, Pamela and Gardner Jackson, who are here today, and my sisters-in-law and brothers-in-law, William and Dana, Gardy and Natalie, thank you for your love and support. To my daughters, Talia and Layla, I bet you never thought you'd get to skip school by spending a day at the White House. <laughs> this is all pretty exciting for me as well, but nothing has brought me greater joy than being your mother. I love you very much. Patrick, thank you for everything you've done for me over these past 25 years of our marriage. You've done everything to support and encourage me, and it is you who've made this moment possible. Your, your steadfast love gave me the courage to move in this direction. I, I don't know that I believed you when you said that I could do this, but now I do. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
And for that, I'm forever grateful. In the family category, let me also briefly mention the huge extended family, both Patrick's and my own, who are watching this from all over the country and the world. Thank you for supporting me. I hope to be able to connect with you personally in the coming weeks and months. Moving on briefly to the second category of people that warrant special recognition, those who've provided invaluable support to me professionally in the decades prior to my nomination and the many, many friends I've been privileged to make throughout my life and career. Now, I know that everyone who finds professional success thinks they have the best mentors, but I truly do. <laughs> I had three inspiring jurists for whom I had the privilege of clerking, Judge Patty Saris, Judge Bruce Selya, and of course, Justice Stephen Breyer. Each of them is an exceptional public servant, and I could not have had better role models for thoughtfulness, integrity, honor, and principle, both by word and deed. My clerkship with Justice Breyer in particular was an extraordinary gift, and one for which I've only become more grateful with each passing year. Justice Breyer's commitment to an independent, impartial judiciary is unflagging. And for him, the rule of law is not merely a duty, it is his passion. I am daunted by the prospect of having to follow in his footsteps, and I would count myself lucky, indeed, to be able to do so with even the smallest amount of his wisdom, grace, and joy. The exceptional mentorship of the judges for whom I clerked has proven especially significant for me during this past decade of my service as a federal judge. And of course, that service itself has been a unique opportunity. For that, I must also thank President Obama, who put his faith in me by nominating me to my first judicial role on the federal district court. This brings me to my colleagues and staff of the Federal District Court in Washington, D.C. and the D.C. Circuit. Thank you for everything. I am deeply grateful for your wisdom and your battle-tested friendship through the years. I also want to extend a special thanks to all of my law clerks, many of whom are here today, who have carved out time and space to accompany me on this professional journey. I'm especially grateful to Jennifer Gruda, who has been by my side since nearly the outset of my time on the bench and has promised, has promised not to leave me as we take this last big step. <laughs> to the many other friends that I have had the great good fortune to have made throughout the years, from my neighborhood growing up, from Miami Palmetto Senior High School and especially the debate team, right. <laughs> From my days at Harvard College, where I met my indefatigable and beloved roommates, Lisa Fairfax, Nina Coleman-Simmons, and Antoinette Sequera-Coakley, they are truly my sisters. To my time at Harvard Law School and the many professional experiences that I've been blessed to have since graduation, thank you. I have too many friends to name, but please know how much you've meant to me and how much I have appreciated the smiles, the hugs, and the many girls that have propelled me <laughs> forward to this day. 
Finally, I'd like to give special thanks to the White House staff and the special assistants who provided invaluable assistance in helping me to navigate the confirmation process. My trusted Sherpa, Senator Doug Jones, was an absolute godsend. <laughs> he was an absolute godsend. He's not only the best storyteller you'd ever want to meet, but also unbelievably popular on the Hill, which helped a lot. <laughs> I'm also standing here today in no small part due to the hard work of the brilliant folks who interact with the legislature and other stakeholders on behalf of the White House, including Louisa Terrell, Rima Doden, Tona Boyd, Minion Moore, Ben LeBalt, and Andrew Bates. <laughs> I am also particularly grateful for the awe-inspiring leadership of White House Counsel Dana Remus. <laughs> of Paige Herwig, where's Paige? <laughs> and Ron Klain. They led an extraordinarily talented team of White House staffers in the Herculean effort that was required to ensure that I was well prepared for the rigors of this process and in record time. Thank you all. Thank you as well to the many, many kind-hearted people from all over this country and around the world who have reached out to me directly in recent weeks with messages of support. I have spent years toiling away in the relative solitude of my chambers with just my law clerks in isolation. So it's been somewhat overwhelming in a good way to recently be flooded with thousands of notes and cards and photos expressing just how much this moment means to so many people. The notes that I've received from children are particularly cute and especially meaningful because more than anything, they speak directly to the hope and promise of America. It has taken 232 years and 115 prior appointments for a black woman to be selected to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. but we've made it. <laughs> we've made it, all of us, all of us. And, and our children are telling me that they see now more than ever that here in America, anything is possible. They also tell me that I'm a role model, which I take both as an opportunity and as a huge responsibility. I am feeling up to the task primarily because I know that I am not alone. I am 
standing on the shoulders of my own role models, generations of Americans who never had anything close to this kind of opportunity, but who got up every day and went to work believing in the promise of America, showing others through their determination and yes, their perseverance that good, good things can be done in this great country. From my grandparents on both sides, who had only a grade school education but instilled in my parents the importance of learning, to my parents who went to racially segregated schools growing up and were the first in their families to have the chance to go to college. I am also ever buoyed by the leadership of generations past who helped to light the way, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Justice Thurgood Marshall, and my personal heroine, Judge Constance Baker Motley. They and so many others did the heavy lifting that made this day possible. And for all of the talk of this historic nomination and now confirmation, I think of them as the true pathbreakers. I am just the very lucky first inheritor of the dream of liberty and justice for all. Sure, I have worked hard to get to this point in my career, and I have now achieved something far beyond anything my grandparents could have possibly ever imagined. But no one does this on their own. The path was cleared for me so that I might rise to this occasion. And in the poetic words of Dr. Maya Angelou, I do so now while bringing the gifts my ancestors gave. I, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. So as I take on this new role, I strongly believe that this is a moment in which all Americans can take great pride. We have come a long way toward perfecting our union. In my family, it took just one generation to go from segregation to the Supreme Court of the United States. And it is an honor, the honor of a lifetime, for me to have this chance to join the court, to promote the rule of law at the highest level, and to do my part to carry our shared project of democracy and equal justice under law forward into the future. Thank you again, Mr. President and members of the Senate, for this incredible honor.
poignant and heartfelt message from Katanji Brown-Jackson as she becomes the first black female Supreme Court justice to the Supreme Court. Elon Moy standing by for more reaction. Elon? Well, Kelly, we heard President Biden refer to today as a fundamental shift in America. We also saw Judge Jackson several times wiping her tears away as she thanked the people who helped her on this incredible journey to become the first black woman to sit on the Supreme Court, invoking Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., invoking Maya Angelou in her remarks. Now, practically speaking, she will not change the balance of power on the court. There will still be six conservatives and three liberal judges, uh, justices, but the makeup of the court will look very different. And President Biden said that was really his goal when he made that pledge on the campaign trail to nominate a woman to sit on the Supreme Court. This was also a win for Democratic leadership in Congress, who has struggled to unify the progressive and moderate wings of their party. All 50 Democratic senators voted in favor of her. They were also able to win over three Republicans to their side as well. The president thanked uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in his remarks for keeping the conference together. Chuck Schumer likes to say that Judge Jackson is brilliant, beloved, and belongs on the Supreme Court. And now it is official. The Senate has confirmed her to this historic position as the first woman, the first black woman to sit on the Supreme Court. Elon, thank you very much. Elon Moy. By the way, hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. Let's turn back to the markets, where we see some pretty solid gains this afternoon. The Dow's up 266 points, the S&P up 8. The Nasdaq's still down 84 points, though. And little wonder you have rates moving higher again, with the 10-year poking above 2.7% for the first time in three years. Let's get straight to Dom Chu. He's down at the New York Stock Exchange for us today. Dom? So, Kelly, to your point, that 2.7 percent, it was actually 2.73 percent. That was the intraday high for those 10-year Treasury note yields. And that does represent this late cycle high, this most recent push in interest rates higher. That is having a more negative effect and underperforming side of things for the Nasdaq Composite. As you can see, they're 13,812 off the worst levels of the day, but still down just about two-thirds of 1 percent, 84 points. The S&P 500 holding steady about 4,500, 4,5,08 the last trade there, just about a quarter percent gain in the Dow Industrial up about 262 points. By the way, at the highs today, we were up roughly 325 points. To, to give you an idea of the context here, we are up but off the best levels of the session. Also watch what's happening right now over the course of the last week because we have seen those higher interest rates take their toll on one specific and very important part of the market. That is the technology side of things, the worst performing sector over the last week in the S&P, down three and a third percent. And meanwhile, you can see here that the healthcare and the energy sectors were the best performing ones to give you an idea of how the week has shaken out so far. And then today, stocks to watch, fintech, especially Robinhood. And the reason why is because analysts at Goldman Sachs have now cut Robinhood from a neutral to a sell rating. They also cut their target price for that stock. Coinbase remains a buy over global or a Goldman, but they do cut their price there as well. What you want to keep an eye on is, though, the entire fintech space, PayPal holdings block included. The GlobalX fintech ETF is also down about one half of one percent. You can feel a lot of the, these reverberations 
Goldman says they don't think that Robinhood has a very easy path to profitability in the year 2023. So even next year, the street's estimates, they say, are too high. We'll see if that fintech industry can break some of that near and medium term and longer term downside trends that we've seen. Kelly, back over to you. They have been languishing. Dom, thank you very much. All right, everybody, it's been another incredibly fast moving week as the Fed ratchets up its tightening plans, yields shoot higher and markets wobble. But a closer look at the market shows it's actually responding to this ever more hawkish Fed pretty well. Look how much the yield curve has steepened just this week. This is a huge upward swing. That's from the lows on Sunday to a 20 basis point steepness. As of today, it's a 30 basis point reversal, uh, pretty much. And our favorite bellwether, the three-month 10-year curve, which was already steep, has continued to move higher. It's now at two full percentage points. That's a level we haven't seen in several years' time. Now, all of this is bullish. It signals demand is coming. Demand is accelerating, maybe for the Fed accelerating too much. But for the most part, let's turn to the data tracker. We put the yield curves firmly in the good camp this week. Whether you want to look at the two-year, whether you want to look at the three-month, we'll bring it over here and we'll say it's pretty much an encouraging sign here that the Fed's tightening talk is actually something that's seen as helping markets stabilize in the longer run. Also good inflation expectations. Those have been dropping as well. We saw 10-year break-evens, for instance, peak over a level of 3% last month, and they're now down to around 2.8%. So the tightening is having an impact. The macro data, again, is so strong. It's almost too strong. Jobless claims at another five-decade low. We found that out this week. Little wonder, then, that the Fed's minutes showed they plan to ramp up balance sheet reduction. And they would have hiked rates by half a point last month if not for the war in Ukraine. But my next guest doesn't think the Fed has as much runway to raise rates as is now widely assumed. Let's bring in Frances Donald. She's chief economist and strategist at Manulife Investment Management. Frances, it's great to have you today. And you don't you think they're ultimately going to have to back down here? I think we're still going to see rate hikes, but not as many as the market or the Fed currently hopes for or as is priced for. Look, when we mark to market, you're absolutely right. Jobless claims, very strong. Levels of PMIs look good. We had energy come back, which is a little bit why those inflation break events have come down. But we're not in the business of marking to market. We're in the business of knowing what's going to happen three to six months from now. And when you look at the leading indicators for where the U.S. economy is going, it's going into a material growth slowdown. From housing to fiscal headwinds to real wages declining, consumer sentiment being quite low, that's not consistent with a bullish reflation trade. It's consistent with a consumer that's saying prices are too high, I need to pull back, and a Fed that's going to have cover to say we don't have to go as fast as we were thinking we would have to go, inflation is moderating, growth is now a bigger component of that decision-making function. You know, I hear what you're saying. We heard similar uh, talk from Kathy Wood this week again when she's saying the Fed is risking tightening into a slowdown. She cited consumer sentiment. She cited what we heard from companies like RH, the expected deceleration of auto sales and all the rest of it. But here's my question. All of the consumer disappointment, let's call it, and frustration is coming from high inflation. So doesn't that mean the Fed cannot back away here or they're going to make the problem worse? Well, here's the challenge with inflation. We're changing the nature of inflation as it goes forward. Headline inflation is going to decline, but we're moving from COVID inflation, which was largely in discretionary items like 
used cars, you don't buy one every month, or, or fancy toasters or kitchen renos, towards conflict inflation in energy and food coupled with high, higher housing costs. That is much more difficult for the consumer to move away from. We've become complacent about the demand destruction elements of high inflation. Now inflation is going to cool on the headline and become more of a growth problem than it is an inflation problem. And that's why that decision-making function from the Fed has the ability to tilt back towards the employment growth mandate. Again, we're not saying no hikes. We're just saying they can't go nine times this year. Growth is going to be too challenging for that. Wouldn't you say, though, that the conflict inflation is a sideshow to the real story, which is the labor market, that the most important thing is the trend of wage growth and wage pressures, because that you can see show up in services prices in the future and everywhere across the economy. We're seeing it broaden, right? It's not just goods inflation. It's inflation in a wide category of services and other areas. So unless the labor market slows down, I don't know why we should expect inflation pressures to moderate substantially. Well, let's be careful about wages. First of all, wages are not growing fast enough to offset the inflation that we're seeing as an energy and food make up 12 to 15 percent of that consumer basket and rising. It's going to be more challenging to move away from real wages. Declining is something that should be concerning all of us. Now, that labor market is very tight. But remember, the labor market is the last to go. It's a lagging or coincident indicator. Initial jobless claims tend to be extraordinarily strong before we hit rough patches. So we need to be looking forward at where consumer sentiment is, what are those leading indicators of retail sales like housing activity and saying wage growth that we've seen, which is highly segmented into lower income Americans, leisure and hospitality, isn't broad enough or strong enough to give you the lift to offset what's a growth slowdown to come, not a recession, just a growth slowdown that gives the Fed cover to pivot. Yeah, and I, I totally I know like all of this classically is absolutely right. But I just wonder, because this is an inflation scare, you know, inflation is what is causing the weakness in consumer sentiment, right? You know, the housing, that was a pandemic story, so it's kind of obvious that would be ending. So if inflation needs to be resolved, then are we supposed to just kind of sit back and hope that it's resolved on its own at some point in the future? You know, if you want to, if you want to fix that consumer sentiment problem, don't you need to try to get inflation down in order to do that? Well, that would be desirable, except rate hikes are going to do very little for energy or food inflation. They'll help on the housing front, but only if we get a pivot from the Fed to something that looks more like a soft landing. The Fed is doing exactly what it needs to do. It's orchestrating a slowdown to bring down demand. So all we're saying here is like the Fed is going to be successful. It's going to destroy demand hopefully not too much, that's going to pile on with recessions in China, recessions in Europe, which have very little to do with monetary policy. And combined, that's going to create a slower growth path that says to the Fed, we still need to get back to neutral, but slower and over a period of years. It comes back to the question, how much of this inflation can Fed rate hikes solve? Even Powell told us on March 16th, this year's inflation isn't really what we're targeting. We're targeting longer term inflation. He admitted that's not what we're trying to fix right now. We can't fix right now. That's the Fed message we should take away. All right, Francis, thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Francis Donald from Man U Life. Now, my next guest has been warning about the rise in inflation and rates for the past year, if not longer, and has been shifting his investments accordingly. And despite concerns about higher prices, he says consumer spending will remain strong. Joining me now is Charlie Babrinskoy. He's the vice chair and head of the investment group at Ariel. These are like the perfect bookends, Charlie, of the, of the whole market in a nutshell. Um, I take the points Francis is making, but you would look at things a little bit differently, right? 
That would be an understatement, Kelly. Um, so right now, uh, there are lots of different theories on where inflation comes from. In fact, there are lots of different things that cause inflation. The point is all of them right now are pointing at higher inflation. So if you're a monetarist like me, you believe the money supply really matters. M2 money supply is up 40%. If you are somebody who believes that the Fed controls things, the Fed fund rate is right now at 50 basis points, which is negative real interest rates. We have negative real interest rates right now. That's inflationary. There are supply side people who think this is about our ability to produce goods. And clearly that's inflationary right now as we aren't being able to get the supply of goods that we need. There are people that think this is about wages. We have the tightest wage and labor market that we've had probably in 40 years. We have globalization, which has been a negative force for inflation, producing people shipping goods, manufacturing to low cost markets. That is slowing down. And if anything, there's going to be insourcing. So no matter how what theory of inflation you believe in, all factors point for higher and persistent inflation. I think, frankly, the other side is just grasping at straws. This all comes down to investment strategies as well. And so, you know, I know obviously we always talk about your stock picks in particular, but broadly speaking, in terms of sectors, where would you be, for instance, on the consumer? Which part of the consumer landscape would you be in right now? Most importantly, this points to value versus growth. Value has been so out of favor for the last 10 years with everybody thinking you got to buy FANG stocks that there we have so many value stocks that are so cheap and these inflationary and interest rates moving up are very good for value stocks relative to growth, which is what we're seeing on days like today when value is crushing growth. Um, secondly, you're absolutely right. There are parts of the consumer market that are very cheap. Names like, you know, I love Madison Square Garden Entertainment, which mm -hmm. is up about 10% this year, but is still very cheap because there's huge pent up demand for entertainment, for experience, for getting out there. And that stock uh, we think um, is is worth more than $100 a share trading for less than 80. So we think there's huge pent up demand for cars. Borg Warner is going to be help uh, companies make electric vehicles um, trading at seven times earnings. So that is where we see real value in value stocks. Sure. Now, why is it that you do admit you've lost little confidence in the strength of the economy and the labor market? Yeah. So, so I'm not going to deny that that Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, is very is going to be very tough on the European economy, uh, and it, higher energy prices and input costs are absolutely a negative for the U.S. economy. The uh, European economy is probably 20% of the world's GDP. They're a big buyer of U.S. goods. It's not good for the U.S. economy. I will admit that. And I will admit sentiment does matter and sentiment has been softening among the consumers. But that so I'm going to say that the chance of a recession in the next before the end of next year is probably up to 30 percent, not the 50 percent that a lot of people think. But I can't deny that these there's some headwinds on the economy that didn't exist before Russia invaded Ukraine. Yeah, but not enough for you to change, uh, make any dramatic changes yet. Charlie, appreciate your time today. We'll check back in soon. Thanks, Kelly. Charlie Wabrinskoy with Ariel Investments. Let's turn now to real estate specifically, the market under a ton of pressure and facing a growing list of headwinds. Low inventory, rising home prices, the 30-year fixed mortgage rate topping 5% this week. My next guest knows both the commercial and residential pieces of the market. Well, he is Don Peebles, the founder, chairman, and CEO of real estate developer The Peebles Corp. He has a multi-billion dollar portfolio of projects in many major metro areas, including New York, Miami, and Los Angeles. Don, welcome. And before I get into all of this, Miami, I mean, this is Bitcoin Miami. Everybody's talking about Miami. Don Peebles is talking about Miami. So it, in many ways, is this a regional story of strength right now? 
Yeah, I mean, Miami is a has been an emerging city for quite some time, and it has benefited significantly uh, from the fallout of COVID and the relocation outside of New York and other areas around the country, including Los Angeles and San Francisco, where high net worth individuals and entrepreneurs and companies are fleeing to a tax friendly state, a business friendly state. And so Florida, especially Miami um, and Palm Beach are benefiting significantly. Your real estate exposure on the residential side is really more to the high end markets. We talked about Miami, but whether it's Palm Beach, Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, you know, areas of Florida, would you say that your residential consumer is in very good shape, somewhat good shape? And, and what's going on with the market dynamics as mortgage rates spike? I mean, it's interesting. I think that the ups, the, the, the more moderate um, home market is going to continue to endure because it's so supply constrained and there's pent up demand. Um, I think the luxury kind of that, you know, moderate luxury up to, say, three to five million dollars. Um, and is going to get hit hard. I think anything, say, $10 million and down in New York is going to be hit harder as interest rates rise because the buyers are more interest rate um, sensitive uh, to those, and, and low interest rates have given you know buyers a tremendous buying power. However, um, I think that the up, uh, the high end of the marketplace in business-friendly environments is going to continue to do well. And for some reason, um, Los Angeles has endured um, exceptionally well on the ultra high end side. I mean, they're setting record price after record price for single family homes, and there doesn't seem to be an end in sight for the high end, you know, ultra luxury homes. Um, and I think that's because their industry is driven, um, you know, by different um, uh, stimulus. It's so interesting. One final question on the residential side. I just want to ask you quickly about offices after that. But where do you think we're going to be a year from now in the residential market in terms of prices, in terms of activity, in terms of inventory? I think that, you know, Miami will continue to to um, experience significant appreciation because um, supply constraints, um, the market wasn't ready for this type of demand. I think New York will um, hold its own overall um, on the residential side because it's supply constrained. But I think we'll start seeing some more development. I think we'll see it in places like Boston, Charlotte. I think you'll see Los Angeles, downtown L.A. pick back up. Um, for a, a number of different reasons. Um, but I think that there's a very positive side. I think the single family rental market um, to scale, I think, has got some headwinds ahead of it, mainly because the residents in those communities are beginning to push back. They don't want rental homes in you know, traditionally homeowner um, communities. And so you'll see more pushback on that. Um, and there'll be more regulation coming. Sure. So what would you say about the office space right now where we already know that we're never going to go back to maybe the occupancy rates we once had, but at the same time, we're back to work, you know, parking lots are filling up. Uh, you know, there's, there is some normalization taking place. Are the dynamics of that market strong enough to withstand higher interest rates? Well, I think the commercial office sector is amongst the most vulnerable in the country. I think you look at New York City, for example, the vacancy rates are at all time highs. Credit loss is increasing significantly, and demand is going to continue to decrease in New York, especially, for example, with the more older buildings that were once considered Class A buildings, but anywhere else they would be Class B and C buildings. Um, I think the west side of New York is going to be the, you know, the, the exception to the rule and probably what gets done at Penn Station if Renato gets that done. Um, but I think, again, I hate to bring up Miami, but Miami office market's on fire, and our company is getting ready to develop 
two uh, major office buildings in uh, South Florida, um, in Miami Beach and South Beach, of all places, because there's been such a great demand. So it's, it's amazing. What's happened in Miami is asking rents for commercial office space in the last two years, two and a half years, has actually increased by 70 to 80 percent wow. um, for Class A buildings because it's so supply constrained and there's so much demand for people from the Northeast, especially businesses from New York, relocating down here. Is and so that's that's a that's a that's an exception to the rule. And I think you're seeing that we're seeing that in Austin and we're beginning to see that in Dallas. Interesting. That was going to be the final thing. Is it only New York where you're, you know, let's call it bearish on commercial real estate? It sounds like there are other areas you have concerns about as well. Oh, absolutely. Washington, D.C. has record vacancies. I think the vacancy rate for commercial office space in Washington, D.C. is almost going to get to 20 percent. So these buildings are going to have to find alternative uses. But all of the markets where there are business, um, and, you know, anti-business environments or, or headwinds for businesses in general, where quality of life has diminished and public safety um, has become an issue like Philadelphia, like New York, like L- L.A., the, off- the, the office markets are going to continue uh, to uh, become problematic and vacancy rates will continue to go up. Rents are going to continue to decline um, because businesses don't want to be there anymore. And you add to this quality of life issues to the absurd you know, levels of corporate and individual income taxes. And it's harder for these cities to make a compelling argument to businesses anymore. So they're going to lose uh, businesses. It's just a question of how much and, and can they react to it. And I, I think that's going to be a big issue for New York. Um, you know, yeah. we're planning to build a, a very large office building on the west side, hopefully, in New York. And we've got a lot of confidence in the new mayor. So we're hopeful that the quality of life issues will turn around. Well, few people have their pull, a finger on the pulse of real estate like you do. I really appreciate it, Don. Thanks for joining us and telling us more about it. Thank you for having me. Don Peebles with the Peebles Corporation. Let's get to Seema Modi now for our CNBC News update. Seema? Hi, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. President Biden and Vice President Harris welcoming Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the White House after her confirmation to join the Supreme Court. Jackson says she will be an independent justice. I've also spent the better part of the past decade hearing thousands of cases and writing hundreds of opinions. And in every instance, I have done my level best to stay in my lane and to reach a result that is consistent with my understanding of the law and with the obligation to rule independently without fear or favor. The Federal Trade Commission is seeking some of its largest ever civil penalties against Walmart and Kohl's. Regulators say the companies made deceptive environmental claims about textiles made from bamboo. In France, President Macron's lead has shrunk to its smallest gap yet in the presidential election starting this weekend. A poll today shows Macron was just a two percentage point lead over far-right candidate Marie Le Pen. Remember her? On the news, when the push to build more housing runs into increasingly scarce water supplies, that's tonight at 7 Eastern. Kelly, we'll be watching. Seema, thank you very much. Still ahead, everybody, three buys into bail. It's earnings edition. The big banks get set to report next week. And my next guest says there's one stinker in the group and one standout. You're looking at the chart of the standout. It is down 20% in the past three months. The name and why it's a buy next. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. Never mind those traditional three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic. Investors are paying attention to a different set of three R's right now, and it's rates, risk, and recession. The NASDAQ and the S&P on pace for a down week, but earnings season is looming around the corner, for better or worse, and we're looking at three names that are reporting in today's edition of Three Buys and a Bail. Joining me now is CNBC contributor Gina Sanchez. She is chief market strategist at Lido Advisors. Gina, it's great to have you all right, let's just run right through this. United Health is your first buy, and the shares, by the way, hitting an all-time high ahead of earnings next Thursday. What do you like about it? Well, so this is a stock and a company that has been driving both top line and bottom line growth, and that is extremely important. They just had a setback because uh, their uh, acquisition of Charge Healthcare um, uh, was blocked by the DOJ. However, they've just announced a new acquisition um, uh, of LHC Group, which is which would add to their home health uh, offering. And everything that this company has been doing is about growing, like I said, that top and bottom line growth. And you like to lean in when they're at all-time highs, or does that, do you feel like it's already priced, uh, I don't want to say it, but priced for perfection? Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. This company is actually trading at only a, a, a modest uh, um, premium to, uh, to the S&P 500, with regard to, P and, to, to to its PE. So if you look at it from a valuation standpoint, it's not extremely overvalued. Um, and we actually still see some upside here. And if we go into that really negative scenario where we see a recession, which we don't necessarily buy into, but this is actually a, a very, very good recession um, proof stock. And so, you know, this is a, a stock that is showing that it can perform. If we have a really negative c scenario, it's actually a great stock to own. And so there's a lot of reasons to own this stock, and we don't think it's too expensive right now. Sure. And so United Health uh, is one name that you'd like. The next is Albertsons, has a similar feel to it. Consumer Staples, a little more defensive. Its shares, I think, have doubled over the past year. They report before the bell on Tuesday. But again, more exposed on the labor side. They just reached a deal, I think, to avoid a worker strike. Uh, why do you like them? So, you know, Albertsons is one of those stories, and it's a stock that, um, you know, that is very good in, a, in, in the face of inflation. And if there's one thing that we do think might linger, it's that inflation story. Um, and, you know, as soon as we saw the invasion of Ukraine, um, Albertsons really popped up, basically saying, nope, you know, this is not, the reopening is, is not going to hurt us. We're still in demand. Um, and, you know, th this is a company that has also been driving tremendous growth. And it's actually trading at a discount, not only to the S&P, but also to the, you know, the sort of the food se segment of the S&P. And so, you know, the food retailers generally trade at a discount um, to the S&P 500. Um, but here's one that you're picking up even at a better value uh, with really strong growth. All right. Albertson's up just under 3 percent today. 
Let's move along to your pair trade and financials because that's really uh, what everyone will be focused on next week. We'll start with J.P. Morgan. I'm going to say it. No surprise you think it's a buy. Everyone loves this one, even though it is down 20 percent the past three months. Yeah, you know, the banks have all gotten hit really hard. I think the outlook um, around these recession fears, the concern around inflation, the Fed raising rates, and even the potential for um, those rate hikes to cause an inversion uh, in the yield curve, none of that looks great for banks, obviously. Um, however, you know, J.P. Morgan is a company that has shown that it can execute, and it got this double whammy in terms of, of, of getting hit, not only with all the fears I just talked about, but also because they announced OPEX spending. And everybody always gets nervous when a bank announces, you know, operations mm -hmm. uh, expenditures because they're concerned they're not going to be able to, to execute. But this is a bank that has a track record on that execution. And so we actually think it's a really good deal right now. Yeah, it's traded poorly ever since that earnings announcement. You're right. And maybe this one will turn things around. We shall see. The flip side is Citigroup, which you're still mourning. Uh, this is your bail today. Not a big fan of the name. By the way, it's kind of moved in lockstep with J.P. Morgan. So for all the quality differences here, they're not trading that differenti differentiatedly. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, Citibank, it, it's a bit of a stinker. They have, you know, continued to have to slog through their, you know, the, you know, the, the reorganization of, of the company, and there's still a lot of wood left to chop. And now the one thing you could say about Citigroup is expectations are so low um, that any execution uh, could actually cause a, a small, a small rally. Um, but we think that there's, it's still um, a bit too uncertain uh, in order for them to sort of prove that they've turned themselves around. And so from that perspective, there's just a bit more risk in that stock. All right. Uh, and so if I see Citigroup trading in lockstep with J.P. Morgan, I'll take J.P. Morgan every day of the week. All right. J.P. Morgan, Albertsons, United Health, that's the basket. Uh, Gina, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Gina Sanchez, three buys and a bail this week. Still ahead with the major averages mix, we'll get a check on today's biggest movers after the break. Dow's up 231, NASDAQ down 122. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dow and S&P are higher today, although look at the S&P. It's only up by one point. It could turn a negative, in which case this would have a different feel today. Pretty obvious the Nasdaq not happy about the 10-year over 2.7% as it's down almost 1% right now. The Dow is up 228. So what's driving the Nasdaq down other than rates? NVIDIA, Datadog. Look at some of these declines. NVIDIA is sliding 13%. Datadog nearly that much. Lucid, Marvell, Starbucks are on that list as well, having a rough week as they mark the return of Howard Schultz as CEO. The stock has fallen every day since Monday, Starbucks that is, and is having its worst week since March of 2020. Still ahead, it was a cyber rodeo in Austin last night as Elon Musk celebrated the opening of a new gigafactory. We have the details, more on his lofty goals next on The Exchange. Don't go anywhere.
Welcome back. We're keeping an eye on shares of Tesla down two and a half per se and down percent today. They're down also about five percent for the week. And it comes as Elon Musk opened their newest gigafactory in Texas last night, promising everything from cyber trucks to Tesla bots. But he did also warn of lingering headwinds. Phil LeBeau is here with all the details. Phil. Kelly, this event last night was to mark the official beginning of deliveries of Model Ys built at the Gigafactory just outside of Austin, Texas. When you look at this factory, keep in mind that it is Tesla's fourth final assembly plant. They've got two now in the United States, one in Europe, one in China. It comes at a cost of $1.1 billion. And look at the capacity a half million vehicles annually. Now, they're not going to get there right away. They're going to slowly ramp up production, but that's huge capacity. And for Tesla, this is all about getting into scale. They will be manufacturing not only these vehicles there, but they're also going to be building the 4680 battery cells. And the Texas plant for Tesla is also where they plan to build the Cybertruck. That will happen next year. Last night, Elon Musk talked about the importance of having a huge plant like this in terms of delivering scale worldwide. This is why scale, scale matters. In order to make a real difference, uh, a really big difference to sustainability, we have to make a lot of cars, we have to make a lot of stationary packs uh, to, tra to transition the world to sustainable technology as quickly as possible. They will build a lot of cars this year, at least that's the expectation, after coming in with 936,000 vehicles being delivered last year. The expectation is for them to deliver 1.47 million vehicles this year. Will they give us some kind of guidance when they report earnings in uh, just under a couple of weeks, actually on April 20th? We'll see. Elon Musk has said, Kelly, I may not be on all the conference calls unless there's something important to discuss. Lots of questions out there. Let's, hoping, let's hope that he is on that conference call. Any surprises last night, Phil? No, no, nothing that came out of the blue. I mean, look, he made a lot of the same promises that he has made in the past. We're going to have robo-taxis. We're going to have uh, a humanoid uh, robot that we're going to have a prototype next year. Uh, many of these are projections that we have heard from Elon in the past. I think most people take those projections when he says we're going to have something next year with a big grain of salt. They certainly do. Still a watershed moment to see that gigafactory finally opening. Phil, thank you very much, Phil LeBeau. This ETF is falling about 2% this week as rates climb. And while the sector has historically underperformed in a rising rate environment, some say it could be different this time around. We have those details next. Welcome back, everybody. The Industrials ETF, the XLI, down about three-tenths of a percent today, down two to three percent this week. Let's get to Seema Modi with what's driving the losses and the names taking the biggest hits. Seema? Hey, Kelly, since the war started in February, earnings estimates have come down by nearly one percentage point. That's significant, but not as big of a drop as other sectors like consumer discretionary, financials. While industrials historically underperform in a rising rate environment, investors argue that this time around should be different due in part to the strong demand story. The commentary from John Deere, Caterpillar and other heavyweights is that the shortage in key goods is constraining supply, leading to longer wait times. Plus, Higher oil, commodity prices, that's expected to be good news for a name like Caterpillar that specializes in equipment used to dig oil out of the ground. 
What may cut into margins is wages, average hourly pay for jobs in construction and manufacturing around 34 bucks. That continues to rise. This week, names like United Rentals, General Electric are among the names that sold off on the slowdown concerns. The key stock to watch next week is Fastenal. This is the first industrial to report. What executives say, Kelly, about the demand for parts, machinery? That could give us a better sense as to whether a slowdown is, in fact, in the cards. Yeah, fast and all, but like you said, the whole the whole sector really a bellwether for how the market's going to do here in this regime. Seema, thank you very much, Seema Modi. And that does it for us here on The Exchange, everybody. Power Lunch begins right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.